Paul says, moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers passed under the cloud, all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank out of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples, to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters as some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted, and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain, as some of them also complained, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition or warning upon whom the ends of the age have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And Father, we ask that as we continue now to worship you and honor your son, Jesus Christ, that, Lord, our worship can continue by the ministry of your spirit, just preparing us and being the one who personally speaks to each and every one of us this day through that voice of your spirit and his testimony saying things to our hearts. So, Lord, you know what we need and what we're asking. Give us an ear to hear and a heart to receive, and we pray that your spirit's ministry would speak things to us together this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Perhaps you've found yourself saying this before, I can't believe I did that again. Hopefully you don't say that that often, but I think we're all familiar with it. In fact, I know we're familiar with this statement as well. It's been said, those who don't learn the lessons of history are destined to repeat it. Those who don't learn the lessons of history are destined to repeat it. Well, that applies spiritually. If we don't sincerely learn from our past mistakes we tend to become more prone to repeating those same errors. And oftentimes, when we know the path of error, it seems, spiritually anyway, that when we know the path of error and then we unfortunately pursue it once again, typically we tend to fall much harder and suffer to a much greater degree when we willfully go back and violate the very same areas that God's tried to teach us we should not enter into in rebellion in times past. And look, God, because he loves us, does not want us to have that experience. Therefore, he warns us to protect us so that we wouldn't unnecessarily fall into the weakness of our humanity and enter into spiritual failure and sin. And when God warns, it is never in vain. God knows us way better than we know ourselves And like a parent knows their children and loving them warns them, God warns us because he knows us in the ways that he does. And that's what we see in our text. We find God here cautioning us to avoid sinful paths, to resist temptations that enter us into pitfalls and mistakes. Remember the background, Paul in chapter 9, as he closed up, was illustrating the importance of living a 
fruitful Christian life, an, an effective, we might say, Christian ministry as we serve the Lord. And he was using, remember, an athletic analogy of running a race and giving our absolute best, not just running the race kind of casually, hopefully maybe I could finish, but actually entering in that race and running it to the best of our ability till the finish line. And he said, remember, run your Christian race in such a way that you seek to obtain the highest reward. And he said, look, that means you got to be determined. You got to exercise some dedication. You got to stay focused. It requires exercising personal discipline and being willing to say no to yourself so that you can exercise at times self-control to excel to the highest degree possible, even as a runner would in running their race. Paul said in verse 27 in chapter nine, our last verse, we looked at, he said, but I discipline my body, he says, therefore, and bring it into subjection. Lest, he says, when I've preached to others, that I myself should end up becoming disqualified. So Paul, though a very spiritually mature and committed servant of Jesus, shows us here from verse 27 that he admitted that he knew that it was important for him to do what he's describing there in the 27th verse. Lest he himself fall and be disqualified before he enter the finish line. He didn't want to suffer the shame and consequences of telling other people the right things to do and not paying attention to his own personal condition as a Christian foremost and engaging in spiritual compromise. So Paul said, I realize, I know my own humanity. I'm aware of my own sinfulness as a man. And Paul said, therefore, I realize this spiritual reality that not everyone who starts out spiritually, not everyone who runs in the race well for a long period of time always finishes well, Paul realized, look, you can run three and a half laps around the track doing really great. And in that last stretch, because of weariness or because of distraction or whatever, you can end up airing and not finishing well. Some will become, sadly, in the spiritual life, as we've seen, some will disqualify themselves. They will err. They'll make bad choices. And towards the end of their life, they could run really well for a long period of time. But that is no guarantee that somebody finishes well in the latter stages of their spiritual walk. It's just an unfortunate reality, and that's why it's a vital warning to give attention to that spiritual failure is something to be avoided. And Paul's going to say as we go on now this morning, just like all run, but not all finish and not all win the race, in the same way historically he's going to say God's very first congregation, the congregation of Israel, God's very first congregation, all of them received the same benefit of spiritual privileges, of seeing God's power and God's provision. They all had the same opportunities, yet not all of them finished well. Not all of them crossed the finish line in a successful way. And he's going to say we should learn from their past failures because we can be prone to make the exact same mistakes. And so this is going to be Paul's caution. Pay attention to your spiritual life and avoid sins that can lead to your own spiritual downfall. He says in verse 1 in chapter 10 there, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you, he says, to be unaware. I want you to know, make sure you know these things, he says, that all our fathers were under the cloud. All passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses, he says. All ate the same spiritual fruit. All drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, which was Christ. Notice verse 5. But despite all that, he says, with most of them, 
God was not well pleased and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Notice Paul begins by indicating how despite all these great spiritual benefits that God gave to his first congregation, the nation of Israel, his chosen people, and God gave them so much to help them succeed because his heart was he wanted to see them run the race well and finish well and experience his blessing and his best. Yet sadly, many in the congregation, as verse five testifies, failed spiritually, despite all they had at their disposal. Paul says, I don't want you to be unaware of what our spiritual forefathers experienced. The indication is that it was truly important to be aware of what was recorded in the scripture regarding these Old Testament realities of the nation of Israel because these valuable spiritual lessons from God were things that would help safeguard them in their own lives. And it's just a good reminder that being aware of spiritual truth is oftentimes the first step to experiencing spiritual victory. Experiencing spiritual victory many a times is tied to becoming clearly aware of spiritual truth. And so Paul's saying, look, These Old Testament truths, which let me just say as a quick sidelight, as Paul's writing these things, particularly in these verses here, keep in mind, he's talking to the Corinthian believers. He spent 18 months there with this church. And he writes all these things, assuming that they're aware of all these stories and events from the Old Testament. So you seem to kind of get the idea that as Paul writes these things and he's just assuming they're aware of all these things he's talking about, that in those 18 months, Paul gave them a very concentrated teaching of the Old Testament scriptures. And apparently they must've came out to the studies because as Paul's writing to this church, he's just quickly listing off stories and events. And he's just, they know exactly what I'm talking about. They can pick up and grasp what I'm referring to as I say these things. So Paul wanted the Corinthian congregation to realize and be aware how all in God's family of Israel were supplied with the same benefits and blessings in order to help them. If you notice in verse one through four, how multiple times By purposeful emphasis, the Holy Spirit keeps repeating the word all. Verse 1, he says, all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses, all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink. What he's trying to convey is nobody received any special privileges that others did not. He's saying, look, everybody in the congregation of God's people, they all had the same access to God's power to God's provision, to God's protection. God wanted all of them to walk in closeness and faithfulness and be blessed. And all of them saw the same demonstrations of God's love. They all had available to them the same opportunities to excel and to do well spiritually. But these verses recount that though they had many spiritual blessings and benefits, some of them did not take advantage of those things and ultimately led to their downfall. So these verses, verses one through four, Paul's just recounting here many of the benefits and blessings that they encountered. He mentions, first of all, in verse one here, how all of them, he says, were under the cloud. And that speaks of how God offered his direction and his protection to his people. As God's people journeyed through the wilderness, his presence was with them in a very real and powerful way to guide their steps where to go and even when to stay and when to move. He's referring to, for example, Exodus 13, where there it says the Lord went ahead of them 
and guided them during the day with a pillar of cloud, and he provided light at night with a pillar of fire. And this allowed them to travel by day or by night. Then in Exodus 40, we read, and in all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day that it lifted. So they were under, we might say, the clear direction of the Lord's leading in their lives. They experienced this in a very practical way. God made his continual guidance to the people of Israel very obvious. And he did it with this pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire by night that was always with them. They had this wonderful benefit of God directing them where to go. So wherever the cloud went, which is a manifestation of God's presence among them, wherever the cloud went, they just followed the cloud. It wasn't real complicated. If the cloud went over there, then they went over there. If God's cloud or pillar of fire was moving over there, then then they shifted and they went over there. And even more than that, God, through that same leading, made it evident to them when to stay still and when to move. Because when the cloud stood still, even if they thought, maybe we should move, they knew, look, if God's not moving yet, then we need to just stay put. If the presence of the Lord is not leading to do that yet, then maybe it's not the right time yet. Maybe it's not the right season yet. And by the same token, if they felt like, hey, this is a good place. We should just stay here. We kind of like this and we're getting comfortable here. If God's presence started moving, they were to recognize, hey, though we may want to stay put, if God's on the move, then we need to move with God. If God's presence is moving, then we need to follow what God. So God made it evident where to go as well as when to stay and when to go. And let me just say, what a blessing to not have to direct your own life. What a blessing to not have to direct your own life, but to just let God who knows best direct and just follow wherever he leads. What an incredible blessing they had as God's people. They were blessed to be under the covering as well of the Lord's preservation and protection. It wasn't just guidance and direction. It was also preservation and protection because the cloud by day did what? They were in a desert. It shielded them, right, from the hot desert sun in the Mideastern climate. It made things easier. It was a preserving effect. And the pillar of fire by night did the exact opposite. That covering of pillar of fire by night, it shielded them out in the cold temperatures when the temperature would drop out in the desert and it gave them light to be able to see in the dark so that they were able to be safe. And so again, what another wonderful benefit as well to live in a way where they were under God's protective covering. They lived under God's protective covering, which was God's shielding power and they experienced having the Lord preserve them from dangerous things. As they stood close to the Lord in connection to what God was doing, God's shielding power from dangerous and harmful effects was upon their lives. And as long as they stood in step with what God was doing, they were shielded from harmful effects to a much greater degree as compared to if they decided to go over there when God was over here. And they lived under this cloud, Paul says, but under that cloud was God's guidance. It was also God's protection. Paul says, secondarily here, also that they all passed, he says, verse one, through the sea. And of course, this speaks of experiencing God's mighty power. He's referring to the events of the parting of the Red Sea. 
that many of us know well. Exodus 14, remember the children of Israel were being delivered by God from lives of slavery. And as God was leading them into deliverance, the Egyptians were pursuing them. And then they came to the Red Sea and they were kind of boxed in. They were stuck. There was no way out, no way of escape, nowhere to turn. And as the Egyptians marched forward, God's people became afraid. And it says they cried out to the Lord. And Exodus 14 says that Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall not see again forever. The Lord will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. And the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward. But lift up your rod, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. And it goes on to later say in the chapter, and Moses stretched out his hand to the sea. The Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind and made it dry land. And the waters were divided and the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground. You don't typically walk into a sea where there's been water and the ground's dry. So there's multiple miracles going on here. The waters are parting and God's making the ground solid that would have been muddy and mucky. God made it dry ground instantaneously and the waters were a wall to them on the right hand and to the left. So God, by an act of his mighty power, miraculously what? He miraculously made a way when there was no way circumstantially. There was no way circumstantially, and yet God miraculously made a way. There was no way of escape from their past. There was no way of escape from the problems they were currently in, but yet God made a way out. There was no way forward, but God made a way forward when there had, was no way previously forward. Nobody had ever been that way before, but God made a way where there had never been a way before. I'm sure there are people who say, look, this has never happened before. You can't do that. Well, that's true humanly, but God can make a way where there's never been a way before because he's powerful. And he's almighty and God did this and they passed through these dangerous waters and God brought them through safely. And again, what a blessing to get to experience the mighty power of God at work. And that was just one time that Israel saw God's mighty power. God displayed his power tremendously on multiple different occasions. They saw the benefit of God's power. So they had this blessing of seeing God's power. Paul says as well in verse two, they also were all baptized into Moses. And that speaks of being immersed into the shepherd leadership of Moses. That is God is a act of love for his people, sent them a chosen deliverer to rescue them out of slavery. And all they had to do was what? Was just to believe God's message, God's word, his message, and to follow the one that God had sent to them as a deliverer. Sound familiar? Ultimately, God sent Jesus to do the exact same thing, to believe his message and to follow him as a deliverer. And through Moses, God provided loving care and you know, helpful leadership and someone to shepherd them. And through Moses, God gave to them this blessing of being shepherded and brought into God's blessing as a people and they were blessed to have Moses as their spiritual leader, as he would listen to God and then provide leadership and guidance to help the people experience God's best. 
We read also in verse 3, another blessing they enjoyed is that they all ate, it says, the same spiritual food. And that speaks of the blessing, we might say, of God's provision. So they've experienced God's power, God's protection, God's leading. Here, verse 3, he speaks of experiencing the blessing of God's provision. And verse 3 speaks of that spiritual food which God supplied daily, which was that manna from heaven that we know of. Described to us in Exodus 16 and other places where it says the people were complaining because of their hunger and their struggle. In Exodus 16, in response to their cry of hunger, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain quota day by day. And they called this interesting heavenly bread manna. uh, And it says that God provided that manna for 40 years as they traveled through the wilderness until the day they entered the promised land. So every day, every day, early in the morning, this dew would come upon the ground and that dew would become this supernatural bread from heaven that God sent as provision to supply for his people to eat and it sustained their health as they gathered it each day. And again, that is what the Bible says, that every day, remember, they had to go out before the sun came up and they had to gather a quota for the day. They couldn't store it up. They couldn't just go out one day and say, well, why why every day? Why do we have to have daily bread every day? Can't we just bring out a box or a bunch of pots and just store a whole bunch? God wouldn't let them do that. Remember, it would rot. Every day they had to get up early before the hot sun arose and they had to go out and they had to gather the manna, the daily bread for that day to sustain them for that day. And which means they had to continually do what? Keep trusting God for his constant provision. It was an exercise in faith, an exercise in obedience. They had the benefit of God supplying all they needed in many different ways, and they never lacked. God always supplied. He took care of them day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, and they continued to experience God's provision. God always came through. He always supplied and he sustained them. And they enjoyed the benefits of being taken care of by God. They learned God's provision. God showed it to them repeatedly and continually. Look, I will always provide just like I provided yesterday and last week and last month. God continued to show his faithful provision to them. And then finally, in verse four, we read as well. He says, and they all also drank that same spiritual drink for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock, Paul says, interesting, was Christ. Here he speaks of the blessing of God satisfying their thirst that they had as they journeyed through the wilderness and how this imparted life to them. Exodus 17 tells us the people were struggling with thirst in the wilderness and they were crying out and complaining about their thirst in the climate they were in and God seeing their need, wanting to quench That thirst, that was a legitimate need in their life. Remember, it tells us that God spoke to Moses and he said, Moses, I want you to strike the rock. And when Moses struck the rock, miraculously water came forth as a result to quench the people's thirst. Now, uh, last I check, rocks don't typically bring forth water if you break them open. Unless God's doing a miracle. So if you crack open a rock, typically water is not going to come forth unless God's doing something miraculous. That's why verse 4 says that this was referred to as a 
spiritual drink and a spiritual rock. In other words, God was doing something more here. Yes, God was the source of this water and it was spiritual water that quenched their physical thirst, but it also pictured how God alone could quench their deeper thirst, their spiritual thirst inwardly that they had, which was way more even than their physical thirst, how God alone can satisfy that. Interesting, notice Paul says in verse four here that that rock, he says, that spiritual rock, he says it followed them. I'd love to get to heaven, find out what that was like. I mean, was this thing just rolling along with them or would it just reappear every time they turned it around? Uh, Again, we don't know, but the Bible says miraculously, somehow this rock remained amongst them. And wherever they went, there was the rock again. It was available to supply what they needed and quench their thirst. And then Paul goes so far under the leading of the Holy Spirit to even say, verse 4, and that rock, he says, was Christ. That is somehow it miraculously represented the, the spiritual work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it makes complete sense as we step back and realize Jesus is the rock of ages. And yet Jesus was struck. Jesus was struck in death and broken his body in order to meet our spiritual need. And as a result of Jesus being struck in death and being broken, God, through his son's brokenness, brought forth what? The living water spiritually to give life to us, to satisfy mankind's spiritual thirst. John chapter 7, Jesus said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Writing to the, uh, or, or speaking to the woman in the well, Jesus in John 4 said this, whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. So again, Jesus uses this same analogy, how he is this reliable, available source to give living water spiritually to satisfy the spiritual thirst inside of every human being, to give forth eternal and spiritual life. That's why Revelation 22 says, whoever desires, let him come to the water of life freely. See, as we journey through the wilderness of our lives, Jesus is always available, no matter where we're at in our wilderness journey. He is always available, thankfully, to satisfy our thirst as we drink from him and what he supplies. It's through the living waters of his spirit that I am renewed continually. It's through the living waters of Jesus' Spirit's ministry that you're refreshed as you travel through this desert-like world. And as his life is imparted to us, it gives us strength to carry on as we're struggling through this difficult journey of our earthly existence. So Paul points out all these things, verses 1 to 4, saying, look, all the congregation of Israel, they were so privileged, Paul says, They were so blessed. I mean, they had the enjoyment of the benefits of God's power and seeing God's provision and his direction and his protection. They lacked nothing, Paul's saying. And they all got to experience it equally. They had everything they needed to follow his will. Paul says, verse five, but here's the contrast. With most of them, God was not ultimately well-pleased for their bodies were scattered In the wilderness, referring to death. So despite all God did for them, despite how credible God made himself to them, despite how God put at their disposal everything they needed, you might say, for life and godliness, 
Though God gave and supplied all they needed, the majority of Israel instead gave into their sinful flesh and into a spirit of unbelief instead. And as a result of that, they greatly displeased God and suffered great loss for not following him. What Paul's referring to here in verse five, when he says with most of them, God was not well pleased and their bodies were scattered through the wilderness is of course, again, from the Old Testament, when God told them to enter into the promised land where his blessings and his, again, the promises of God would come to their incredible fulfillment in their lives. When God told them to enter the promised land and he would what? Defeat the giants that were in the land that he would deal with and drive out everything that stood in their path so that they could be blessed, what did the people do? They refused to follow God's leading. They refused to go forward. Instead, what did they do? They succumbed to fear, and they worried about what might happen. And because of their concern about what might happen to them, they instead regressed knowing what was God's best, and instead they, instead of walking in faith and seeing God work, they let fear dictate their decisions instead. And so they let fear dictate not just their life decisions, but their spiritual pursuit, and they chose disobedience. And as a result, Paul says here in verse 5, God was not well pleased with them. Because what does the Bible say? That without faith, it's impossible to please God. What God is pleased by is exercising reliance upon him, faith in him, trusting and obeying him and doing his will, despite how it looks, despite how circumstances seem, or even how we may feel, because instead we believe, though I may be a little nervous, though that may look intimidating, though there may be seemingly some risk, I'm going to believe God can take care of me. I'm going to believe that if I do God's will and do God's way, that God will work and God will come to my assistance because there's no safer place to be, what, than in the center of God's will and doing the very things that we know that God wants us to do. So as a result, they brought struggle upon themselves. They lost blessing. And remember what happened. God commanded the entire adult generation would do what? Wander for 40 years struggling in the wilderness until all of their bodies died off and that whole generation of adults would die off in the wilderness and not get to enter the promised land and they miss the blessed experience God intended. And we might fairly say it was their unbelief and fear that led to rebellion against God's voice in their life, telling them what was the right thing to be doing spiritually. It was their own unbelief that led to them rebelling against God's voice, which was telling them the right thing they ought to be doing spiritually that caused them to to end up displeasing God. Because why? They wanted to preserve themselves, so they opted to try and protect and preserve themselves, and instead, in so doing, they displeased God. And their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. They struggled and lost opportunity. And it's a good reminder for all of us Because rejecting God's way to take our own paths in human reasoning, it's always a bad idea. Whenever we reject God's way and we let human reasoning instead dictate to us, "Mm, I don't know about God's way. I'm going to take my way. It seems safer or it's more preferred. That never works out. It's always a bad idea. 
It's always much wiser to walk in faith and confidence with the Lord and to realize God is credible, faithful, reliable. He's shown that so many ways. I need to stay in step with God and continue to do what he wants me to be doing. Verse six then says, now these things, notice he says, became our examples. In other words, the events in Israel's history have become an example for us to learn from. And think about it, how much we, as well as they, have all been blessed by experiencing God's benefits. We've all experienced God's power, God's provision. Have we not many times in our lives seen God provide and come through? How many times we've seen God protect us from harm or give guidance to our lives? And in light of that, we should also be inclined to trust the Lord, to follow his leading in our lives. Yet at times, just like Israel, we're human, right? We find ourselves facing this challenge, this conflict of yielding to our humanity or our sinful flesh. And we struggle with exercising faith over fear at times in our lives. And we wrestle just like they do from taking God's path at times in our own human reasoning or our unbelief. That's why Hebrews 3 says to us, referring to the events in Israel's history, beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing or turning from the living God. He says, you need to warn each other day by day while it's called today. And he says, remember what it says today when you hear his voice. Don't harden your hearts as Israel did when they rebelled. And who was it that rebelled and fell in the wilderness? But those who heard his voice, was it not the people who Moses let out of Egypt, who made God angry for 40 years and corpses fell in the wilderness? See, they became, because of their unbelief, unable to enter his rest. Again, we are prone to the same temptations and struggles. And look, unbelief is the thief that will always rob our spiritual lives. The person who is not yet saved and experiencing true salvation from Jesus Christ, the unconverted soul, the thing that has robbed them from salvation and forgiveness of sins and the assurance of eternal life and knowing Jesus in a personal way is one thing. It's unbelief. It's choosing not to believe. It's choosing not to believe what God says as comparison to what they think or they feel or what others have said. Unbelief is the thief that robs the unconverted soul from salvation. And as Christians, the same thief tries to rob our spiritual lives. People who struggle with unbelief many times don't follow God's will in a particular situation. So they stay in sin because they don't believe that God can get them out of it. They don't believe that God can give them the power of repentance and, and the ability to overcome, so they stay in sin. Or people don't follow God's leading in their life or God's will if he asks them to do something because of unbelief and fear. Well, if I do that, what if and how? And, 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 and all the what ifs, the thief of unbelief robs them from following God's will. Many times God's people miss, I believe, to some degree at times, the ministry and the power of God's Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Paul's going to talk about in chapters 12 through 14 because of unbelief, because they can't logically reason all out. So they can't in childlike faith just be open. God's word says it. The gifts of the Spirit are real. And in belief, I'm just going to trust and let God's Spirit work. And sometimes they quench and miss the ministry of God's Spirit because of unbelief and so here paul says look these examples of israel they were given to us so that we don't fail spiritually 
in the same way that they failed spiritually because we all have that tendency to make the same errors. So Paul says these things became our examples. He says to the intent, notice he goes on, that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted and do not become idolaters, he says, as some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat, to drink and rose up to play. So Paul illustrates here now some examples of how Israel repeatedly failed in sinful ways despite all these blessings and, and benefits that God gave them spiritually. He mentions here in verse 6 how they lusted after evil things. And the word lust doesn't always have a sexual connotation. The word lust just speaks of strong craving to fulfill a desire within, typically in a wrong way. And this is exactly what Paul's referring to here, the event in Numbers chapter 11, where the people, being ungrateful and impatient and dissatisfied, craving for meat, ultimately, it says in Numbers chapter 11, that they began to complain and, and, and gripe, and God said, okay, I, they, they want meat that bad? I'm going to give them meat. I'm not just going to give them what they want. I'm going to give them meat until they eat so much meat that literally it's going to come out of their nostrils. And they're going to be sick and tired of it. So look, be careful when you've got a strong craving and you want to demand your way with God. Sometimes ultimately God can give you your way. And look, it says ultimately that God gave them their way. He gave them meat, but he sent leanness or emptiness to their soul. And here Paul is saying, look, this craving to satisfy a desire within, whether it's not God's desire or just it's a natural desire, but we're trying to satisfy with a craving in a God-forbidden way, Paul says that was their error, and he says we should not lust after evil things as they did. He says it's going to be just as destructive to us. We've got to be careful of those things. Secondly, he mentions in verse 7 how Israel often as well entered into idolatry again and again. And idolatry is just putting any other thing in, in precedence and important before God. And when we make something more important than God, whatever it is in our life, and it gets our primary dedication, it ends up being what the Bible calls idolatry. It can be a person, it can be a possession, it can be some pursuit, anything can become idolatry in our life. Whatever becomes more important and drives us even more than serving God does. And Paul quotes from the event where Aaron and the people of Israel made the golden calf in verse 7 there. And they were partying and, and, and doing all this. And it ended up just ruining their spiritual experience. And they suffered great painful consequence. And again, Paul says these examples from Israel's history, they teach us, he says there, verse 7, that we should not become idolaters as some of them did. That we shouldn't fall prey to the same thing. And look, let's be candid. From time to time, we can all become guilty of, guilty of idolatry as Christians, just as the congregation of Israel did. It may be in different forms, but again, idolatry has no set form. It's the heart issue. And we all have to keep our lives in check from time to time. We can have little idols begin to develop in our lives. Things that become more important than God himself to us. And that's being really guilty of idolatry in God's presence. Paul says, verse seven, nor, verse eight, excuse me, nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, the consequence, 23,000, he says, fell or died. Now, this refers to the events recorded in Numbers 22 to 25, where Balaam, king, uh, or the prophet Balaam, it says, persuaded King Balak how to bring destruction 
upon the children of Israel to bring defeat to them. Remember, Balak was trying to get Balaam to curse God's people. And every time he tried to do that, instead of cursing him, a blessing would come out of his mouth. And Balaam said, look, their God is too strong. You can try and curse them, but their God is too strong and their God loves them too much. And he wants what's best for them. But he says, but here's what you can do. What you can do is you can get them to bring destruction upon themselves. If you get them to, to, to misbehave, if you get them to turn away from their God, then they'll bring their own destruction upon themselves. So he says, here's what you ought to do. Take your most beautiful little Midianite gals and send them into the camp of Israel. You, would you like to worship with us, big boy? And, and persuade them and seduce them to come through sexual perversion and practices in their forms of idolatry to worship their gods and through sexual temptation, draw them into sin and idolatry. And that weakness of compromising and sexual sin was what led to them bringing destruction upon themselves. And not just destruction, great destruction. Because again, you see what Paul recounts in verse 23? In one day, sexual sin, in one day, 23,000 Men in the camp of Israel died. Don't tell me that sexual sin does not have far-reaching, damaging effects. 23,000 people died in one day because of sexual sin and compromise. And he says that should teach us as Christians not to commit sexual immorality. That one event alone should sober us up to say, wow, compromising and indulging in sexual sinful practices is very damaging. And it's something that we as people are all prone to. And it can bring great ruin and damage into our lives. And even with God's many benefits, anyone can still fall prey quite quickly to sexual temptation. And so that is why the Bible cautions us very candidly by just saying, flee sexual immorality. God doesn't even say pray about it. He doesn't say read your Bible more. He just says run. Just run from it. Do everything you can to just run in the opposite direction of the opportunity of sexual temptation because it's something that can bring not only our failures, but great painful consequences as a result. Paul goes on verse nine to say, nor let us tempt Christ as some of them, he says, also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Verse 10, nor complain, he says, as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. So, Another area of sin that infiltrated the lives of God's people Israel was the error of frequent ingratitude. And this is what Paul is referring to here, which led to them complaining about their situation. And notice, this was not something that God took lightly. A lot of times we, you know, we do. Oh, sexual sin, that's horrible. Drug addicts, that's horrible. You know, complaining? Well, I mean, everybody complains. Well, God didn't take complaining too lightly, apparently. God chooses to insert this into this and, and reference the reality of how this deeply offended God. Because think about it. When we complain at the root of it, really, what are we doing? We're questioning God's care for us. When we complain about our life situation or our circumstances or what's going on or not going on, basically, we are questioning God's care. And, and God saw this as actually tempting his patience, Paul says here. He's referring to the events probably, at least one occasion, where in Numbers chapter 21, as the people were complaining, God, it says, sent poisonous serpents among them. 
and they started biting the people and destroying the people. And I think what a fitting illustration because complaining tends to poison a person. It tends to poison a family. It tends to poison a group and it destroys lives and and tempts the Lord and implies God doesn't know what he's doing. And so we should learn, Paul says, from Israel's history that we shouldn't brush off complaining as no big deal because God sees it as offensive because it basically is sort of tempting the Lord. And again, consider who am I to complain after who I am and after all God does for me. Paul says we need to guard against this and we don't want to become presumptuous and tempt the Lord, whether it's through complaining or just willful open defiance disrespectfully. He says, again, these are areas where we can fail even as Israel failed greatly. Paul says, verse 11, now all these things happened to them as again, notice as examples. Then they were then written down for our admonition upon whom the ends of the age have come. So those were literal events that took place in Israel's history. But notice God by his spirit recorded those events in what we have as our Old Testament scripture to be examples, Paul says, to learn from that we might be warned or admonished not to enter into the same mistakes. He says these things happen to them. That is, they experience God's power. They experience God's provision and God's protection and God's guidance and all those things. But yet they ignored God anyway. And they still chose not to walk in God's ways. And then God let them suffer the consequences for their own sin. And Paul says all this was written down to warn us God gave it to us as a record so that we purposely could see those things and learn from their past mistakes, realize that we're prone to the same mistakes and that we could avoid those problems and that we could somehow try and navigate and steer clear of making those same mistakes. Well, it's me. I find this very beautiful that God wrote down these events for us, for our spiritual benefit, for our spiritual warning to caution and protect us as his people. And he recorded all they did, Paul says, in the Old Testament in one way for that purpose. And the question to me becomes this, are we taking time to learn the Old Testament and all the purpose and reason God gave it to us for? You know, one of the reasons why we purposely do put such a high value on teaching the Old Testament to you on Wednesday evenings is because it has great value. Just as much value as all of the scripture, as the New Testament as well. And we should be constantly learning the Old Testament because it serves, God says, to actually safeguard us in our own spiritual lives. Hey, just a silly idea, but do you want a little more spiritual fruitfulness? Do you want to safeguard your spiritual life a little bit more? Well, apparently verse 11 says one of the ways you can do that is get a little more serious about the Old Testament. You can come out on Wednesday evening, or if you don't want to come out on Wednesday evening, there's the podcast. Not that I'm encouraging you not to come to church, but it is what it is. Anything's better than nothing, right? (laughs) But God says, look, my Old Testament has valuable lessons to safeguard and to help you in your spiritual life. And one of the greatest lessons we learn from the example of Israel's history that warns us who now live in the ends of the age is that good beginnings are no guarantee of staying on track and finishing well. And that's no doubt why Paul says in verse 12 here, therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Paul lovingly gives believers a warning about being careful of being overconfident spiritually. 
in such a way whereby we end up falling and failing to pay attention to our own human weakness. And again, falling is never fun, right? Nobody ever wants to fall. Falling's embarrassing. It brings shame. People get hurt. It damages things. It ruins things. And God doesn't want us to fall spiritually, to fall into sin, to enter into spiritual failure. God wants us to be aware, no matter who we are, where we're at in our spiritual walk, we all have the capacity to fall spiritually. It doesn't matter where you're at in your Christian walk, you have the potential to fall into sin. I have the capacity to enter into spiritual failure. Snares are constantly around us, the weakness of our flesh, the ungodly world, the tactics of the devil's deception. And note the two common errors Paul points out leading to people falling into spiritual failure are what? Thinking we are standing strong and that we're strong enough, thinking too much of our spiritual strength and commitment, as well as not taking heed to ourselves, not paying attention to our condition. That's exactly what Peter did. Remember when Peter and Jesus were having dialogue and he said, Lord, even if all the rest fail you, I mean, yeah, I mean, James, John, yeah, I could see him falling. Peter said, but I'll never deny you. And in Peter's overconfidence, the next thing you know, Mr. Superconfident spiritual leader, Peter, he's sleeping when other people are praying. And he's disengaging and disconnecting. And next thing you know, Peter's entering into temptation. And next thing you know, Peter's flat out denying the Lord and falling flat on his face. And it's just a reminder to all of us, we have to maintain a humble reality of our own weakness, knowing we're weak and never trusting ourselves. Never trusting ourselves. It doesn't matter how long we've been walking with the Lord, we are always at risk and should never think that we're not able to fall. The word take heed shows up numerous times all throughout the word of God telling us, pay attention, examine yourselves. Jesus said it 15 times just in the gospels alone. Take heed, pay attention, examine yourself, be on guard because the Christian who puts his life on autopilot, I tell you, will soon be crashing. It's a common thread. That's why Paul says, therefore, to him who thinks he stands, take heed, pay attention, lest you fall. Look, the Lord wants us to walk. He wants us to avoid falling. But we all have the potential. And let me say this morning, is it possible that you've gotten a little too comfortable and relaxed spiritually? I just would say, let us be careful. Satan's looking for victims. He's looking for victims. But let me say as well, you can avoid spiritual failure by taking heed to God's safety protocols. And can I make an analogy? Right now, many people fearing the impact of COVID-19 are seriously committed to observing safety protocols because they don't want to be impacted by COVID-19. And so their fear of being impacted by it is making them diligent about safety protocols. What's a bigger threat? COVID-19 or spiritual and moral failure? Sin, our spiritual life falling in pieces. What should we truly be more diligent about? Maybe God's spiritual protocols to keep us safe and healthy spiritually to make sure we continue to journey forward. What is really the greater threat? I would say it's sin. Let's stand and pray together.